every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. and welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, more or less, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. I've been a fan of both shows since their original runs, and I've spent many years talking to lots of people about them, uh, but I have somehow never done a full rewatch, so this will be my first time going back through all the way from the beginning. I, I am familiar with the story and where everything's going, but my guests are likely going to be educating me just as much as they will be our listeners is probably a lot more so. Uh, talking with me tonight uh, is Elizabeth Rambo, Associate Professor of English at Campbell University, co-editor of Buffy Goes Dark, essays on the final two seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer on television, and frequent contributor to Slayage, the Journal of Whedon Studies. Um, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me and agreeing to be my, my next victim. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm very excited about this podcast. I think it's a great project. Well... We'll see. We'll see if I can if I can make something out of this. I I understand Buffy has a couple of fans out there, so maybe someone will tune in and listen someday. <laughs> well, thanks um, for, thanks for inviting me to be part of it. Well, thanks for agreeing. So, what's uh, briefly what's your history with Buffy? Like, uh, were you on board from the very beginning, or did you come to it later? And uh, how did you decide? How did you get so swept up? You decided you just had to write a book about it. <laughs> I really was on board from the very beginning. I saw the movie, and I thought it was funny. (laughs) (laughs) So, because I was living in California at the time, and I really wanted somebody to satirize the California, the Valley Girl Uh type thing, so I thought it was hilarious. Um, And then a few years later, there was a TV show, and I said, well, I have to watch that if it's going to be like the movie. But it was so much better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I was I was just on board from that time on. Um, I didn't I had no idea, though, that I could uh, write about it as an academic person until hmm, 2001, maybe when I went to the Popular Culture Association conference. Uh huh. And I discovered people writing papers about not only Buffy, but Star Trek, Babylon 5, all kinds of things that were favorites of mine. And I said, okay, I have to do this. So that's how I got involved. (laughs) So, uh, like how long, I mean, what was the first thing you wrote? Did you just do sort of academic papers at first, or did you dive right into the book? Um, Well, the first thing I wrote did become an essay in the book. It was um, a, 
but I had been talking to people, fans and, and mostly other fans online about Buffy for a couple of years before I wrote the essay about season six and how it all made sense. Um, I, I've got your book right here in front of me and uh, your, you are co-editor on the book, but your contribution in the book is Yeats's Entropic Gyre and season six. Is that correct? Yeah. Did I pronounce all those words correctly? Good enough. <laughs> oh, good enough. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, so, yeah, well, we'll get to this. Well, I, I'm fascinated by how, uh, since most of your writing has been about the later seasons, I'm fascinated how we're going to discuss uh, the first season here. But uh, before we get to that, I, I guess it's time for me to give the spoiler warning for people listening at home. Uh, Conversations with Dead People is not going to be a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and probably lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once that you press pause on this podcast now and go do that. It's absolutely worth it, and obviously you're going to get so much more out of these discussions if you've actually seen the shows that we're discussing. So, please, go watch. Uh, we'll still be here when you get back, I promise. Uh, and now, with all of that business taken care of, Elizabeth, if you're ready, let's go to work. Let's go. So tonight we're going to be discussing uh, episodes 103, The Witch. Actually, I'm going to interrupt my flow here and ask you, I've seen it written The Witch and just Witch. Um, I, on the DVD, it's just Witch. <laughs> See, I don't... That's all I can tell you. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I've seen it in multiple sources both ways, so I don't know. Anyways, in my script <laughs> right now, I've got it written The Witch, but at any rate... Written by Dana Reston, directed by Stephen Craig. Uh, 104, Teacher's Pet. Uh, written by David Greenwalt and directed by Bruce, Bruce Seth Green. My lisp came out. And 105, Never Kill a Boy on the First Date. Written by Rob... Is it... How do you pronounce his name? Rob Des Hotel? Des Hotel? That's what I usually say. Okay. And Dean Batali and directed by David Semmel. So, now... Uh, I had mentioned uh, that I'm I'm fascinated to see, to get your take on this very early iteration of Buffy, since most of your writing is on later seasons. But actually, the first question I want to ask you. Okay. When I reached out, when I put feelers out to, to find out um, scholars, authors, anybody who would be interested in joining me for the this podcast, I listed all the episodes I was going to be discussing in what order. And you were the only person that seemed... Uh, that, that gave any interest at all in the episodes that we're discussing tonight. Um, mm -hmm. So tell me the truth. Is this just a pity podcast? Were you just feeling <laughs> sorry for me because nobody wanted to, to discuss these episodes? I, you know, I, I don't know. I, in fact, I don't even, re I don't even remember that, um, which episodes I volunteered for. I mean, I said, <laughs> Oh, I volunteered for those. Okay, fine. Um, <sighs> I think there are a lot of people who look down on the first season, but, and I'm not the first person to say this. I think uh, somebody has written an entire article on it. I think it's David Kochamba. Um, season one is very important. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you got to start somewhere, right? Right. And it's a little rough. They didn't have any money. Um, yeah, they didn't yeah. think they were going to succeed, but... Every, almost, well, not everything, but a lot is in season one that is going to be 
fleshed out later. So it's a really fantastic. Uh, there's a lot of foreshadowing. It's just like the whole series in a capsule is in season one. Yeah. So uh, so last week, uh, Nikki and I talked a little bit about this. Part of the fascination for me. Uh, in this process of doing this podcast is sort of revisiting for the first time in a long time, these early episodes yes. and uh, seeing how much and discussing with my guests, how much uh, of what we know is coming later. Uh, some of the great glorious uh, uh, dark and horrific stuff that's coming much later down the line, like how much of that was sort of seated up front. And uh, uh, even last week, just in the first two episodes in, in uh, welcome to the Hellmouth and the harvest, there was an awful lot that was set up right from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I tell people this for every television show or whatever, uh, the first season of any show, you have to give it a certain leeway. Like yeah. the first season of every show pretty much is finding its footing and learning what it is. And these writers are, just, and, and this was a mid season replacement. So it's, it's a shorter season. They didn't have as much time to, to work with, but right. Anyways, so the the episode so last week it was we discussed two episodes, but it was basically just a uh, you know an oversized premiere. It was mm-hmm. it was the pilot of the series. This week, the episodes you and I are talking about tonight, uh, I think they constitute um, the show really like knuckling down and starting to figure out what it's going to be on a weekly basis. Yeah, um, we've got basically two Monster of the Week episode. And then Never Kill a Boy on the First Date is the first one that really starts moving the seasonal arc ahead. Yeah. After the- yeah, I, would, I was uh, actually surprised at how much... Um, I, see, my memory of this first season is shaky at best, and mm-hmm. I did not remember... Like, I, I really thought that you had Welcome to the Hellmouth and then... Uh, prophecy girl and i thought everything in the middle <laughs> was like monster of the week I, I i did not remember that there was as much sort of uh you know table setting or whatever yeah. stage setting as there was and never kill a boy on the first date i was i was really impressed with me too much more than i remembered yeah but yeah there's a lot going on in there so i i've said again that you focus most of your writing on later seasons revisiting season one like how does it stack up for you or how many times have you watched season one it's well i have watched the whole series of quite a few times but because for a while it was on reruns Mm -hmm. on uh, fx Mm -hmm. and i must have watched it several times because it was just you know constant um but it's been a while it's been a while now. So this was really a, it's been a long time since I've watched season one. And, and, uh, does it stand up? Surprisingly well. And the things that don't stand up well are technology. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a couple of technology moments. Uh, I was thinking, you know, if somebody's watching this today, um, for the first time, they're not going to get some of these. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Nikki last week was surprisingly forgiving on the uh, fashion of the day. And um, like she, she made a point, she was talking about how, you know, if, if kids in high school today showed up in any of these clothing, they, 
probably <laughs> like people probably wouldn't bat an eye. I think she was talking generally, like for most of the characters. I personally feel like Buffy's wardrobe pretty, you know, stands out pretty. Yeah, <laughs> pretty well. I I co- commented on that a couple times too. That uh, some of her mini dresses, I thought, no, that's probably not going to go with school dress code. Yeah, <laughs> it's also surprisingly. I don't know. Seems impractical being a slayer and doing backflips off of uh, pool tables and everything. And and this this is something that does change in later seasons. Her her wardrobe does get more practical. Right. Yeah. Um. So. <laughs> all right. I, I feel like there's certain things that obviously we need to address. Um. In the first episode here, in in which we are introduced to Amy Madison. Mm-hmm. Um, played by Elizabeth Ann Allen. Um, this is a character that has a pretty crazy journey ahead of her. Um, yes. Even compared to most of the regular cast, and not even taking into consideration the truly bananas stuff that goes on in the post-series comics, which I'm not particularly a fan of, but there is some some crazy stuff that goes on in the comics. Well, and I have to admit, I can't talk about the comics. I stopped reading after season eight. Uh, as did I. As did so. I. But, but I've done a little research, and I know that the, you know, the character of, of Amy makes it all the way into the comics, and uh, quite a ways apparently. And, oh. and yeah, the comics are, are, bat poop crazy. <laughs> so uh, they, they felt un, unleashed by not having a television budget, I guess. But at any rate, even within the context of just the show, the television show, um, there's, there's quite a lot in, in store for Amy. So it was interesting to revisit and see how she began that mm-hmm. crazy journey. So what do, what do you think about Amy Madison? You know, she's really a very sympathetic character in this episode mm-hmm. in the witch um there's they go to a lot of, to lengths to contrast um her the way her mother pushes her and is uh sort of overbearing and so forth how amy's just can't be herself with in contrast with buffy's mother who might be a little neglectful and clueless but at least uh cares about buffy even yeah. though she quite know how to right. do um, whereas uh, Catherine Madison just wants her own glory back and she doesn't care about Amy at all I was really impressed with uh, how well they sort of how well the, the episode hid the fact that it wasn't that it was like Catherine and Amy's body mm-hmm. um I didn't get that. I remember the first time I watched this and I had no clue. I was really surprised by that. Okay. That, that's what I was going to ask is if, uh, I don't remember like if I caught on to it on my first viewing, my first viewing was so far removed. I can't remember if I was like, wait a minute, I see what's happening here. But, uh, on this rewatch, I was like, man, they really did a pretty good job of, mm-hmm. of hiding this. And, uh, uh, the actress, uh, actually both actresses, um, Elizabeth that played Amy and uh, Robin Riker who played her mother. Uh, I, they both did a great job of playing each other, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Robin Riker in particular, I think uh, I, I, I really appreciated the way she play. She transitioned. 
So I don't know if you've watched Orphan Black, but uh, you know one of the amazing things about Orphan Black and about um, the actress whose name just completely went out of my head. Um, at any oh, rate, uh, Tatiana Maslany. Thank you, Maslany. Uh, the incredible thing about her, obviously, is not only is she playing multiple characters, but then she plays multiple characters pretending to be other characters, and uh, that just blows my mind. That's, that's a, amazing. That's yeah, a, that's a, like that's a fractal degree of acting that just I can't even conceive of and this is not nearly that complex but it is like it's just a taste of it yeah yeah so Robin Riker the the adult actress playing uh her teenage daughter pretending to be her adult mother I, I don't know that kind of stuff just fascinates me and I thought she did a great job at that mm-hmm. I agree so this so obviously in an episode titled The Witch we get our first taste of of witchcraft which is a thing that becomes so prevalent in the series as it goes forward that it was a little bit of a, a shock to to travel uh so far back in the past that the characters were surprised about witchcraft i don't know right. <laughs> was... well, because this is the third episode or the second episode depending on how you're viewing it this is where they have to make the point that it's not just vampires right he's here to fight yeah so they really hammer away at that um, Giles' big speech where he's so excited that there's going to be all kinds of mystical horrors. Um, the thrill of living on the Hellmouth, he that's, goes. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me for pointing out a glass half full or whatever it is he says. <laughs> um, so, But obviously witchcraft, like I said, plays a role going forward. Um, do you think, like watching... I'm trying to figure out how much of this stuff was sort of thought out ahead of time. And, and I'm not entirely sure that much of it was, I, I feel like some of this is just happy coincidence or much more likely it's just stuff that they, they picked up later and decided to run with. But of yeah. course I'm referring to the fact that Willow becomes a pretty significant uh, witch in her own right. And here we are in the third episode, the third episode of the entire series. And well, not exactly performing witchcraft. We do get just a hint, like we, we get the the early season one version of Willow stirring a cauldron while she's mixing that, up that little potion. So, so there is it. It sort of becomes foreshadowing once we have a whole s- series worth mm-hmm. to work with. I don't see how they could have known that mm-hmm. um because in all the interviews you know from that time and even later there everybody says we did not think that this show would succeed right we thought this would be you know 12 13 episodes and that was it so i think they were just trying to pour everything into it yeah <laughs> and hope this would work but yeah of course, once it did work, then they had to say, okay, what can we take from this going forward? And, of course, Willow has to become a witch. Yeah. <laughs> of course she does. So I feel like some of it is much more successful than other than others. So, some examples of them, like, fleshing out these ideas from the early season later in, in the series. Some mm-hmm. of it plays better than others. Some of it seems... Uh, I don't know, more cohesive than other things, but what was your experience with these episodes? Like, was there anything in this that 
knowing where things are going and how characters are going to develop anything that like stood out that really bugged you like oh man that seems totally out of character from what we know of him later hmm you know most of it seemed pretty consistent i mean xander's issues with you know his insecurities Mm -hmm. it's all here um i'll tell you one thing that and this may not be exactly what you're asking well okay one thing that stands out here though is joyce really is it's hard to like joyce (laughs) yes yeah um but it's partly because she doesn't know what's going on (laughs) right i i i do remember enough about my first experience with the show that i remember joyce being kind of an eye roll character for me Mm-hmm. Like, just the show very quickly distinguishes itself from from the other like WB or CW era like teen dramas, um, but it has those trappings and it 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 really steers into those trappings occasionally. And I think the clueless mother is one of the most obvious uh, and and one of the most obvious tropes that they lean on, and the one that maybe I struggled the most with. Yeah. And they, they get beyond that in season two, finally, but actually the end of season two, there was the, that's almost a break, you know, when Joyce discovers who Buffy is and can't accept it initially. Yeah. So I can't remember. So here's an example of me, of my shoddy memory and not having ever done a full rewatch. I don't believe, but remind me, do we ever actually see Joyce's gallery or is it always just off camera? Is it just something that she mentions every, every episode? I don't think think we, I can't, maybe it's my bad memory, but no, I don't think we ever do. We do see a lot of pieces from it coming in. I thought it was funny that she mentioned the um, tribal art, which we're going to see, uh, a significant piece of tribal art in season two. But, um, right. Yeah. Season two, season three. So there's an episode I'm scanning really quickly to see when, Oh, that, are you referring to Inca mummy girl? Um, no, I'm the, um, the mask that raises the dead. <laughs> yeah. I remember the line. I don't remember the episode. I, I was just thinking of Inca mummy girl. And I was like, wait, is the, was, is the mummy, is that from her gallery? But that, no, I don't think no, so. that's, in, that's in the museum. So, okay. All right. So yeah, it's just, uh, it's the mysterious gallery that, that apparently we never get to visit. Yeah. Oh, well. Um, when does Giles get knocked out? That's the witch. Uh, yeah. That is the first time Giles gets knocked out. Yeah. Yeah. So this begins, this is the, premiere of um yeah giles getting knocked unconscious this is where it sort of rears its bruised and battered head for the first time this is a thing that that uh goes on for quite a while i feel like he's always getting his something dropped on his head or knocked upside the head and it's amazing that he doesn't have brain damage by the end of the series it is it is amazing uh, but that's kind of the, the Giles thing. Uh, another thing I was surprised about is how quickly in the series Giles, Giles like 
jumps into action. Um, like this is, I think, I think which is the first episode where he like actually gets to go out in the field when he goes to, uh, Amy's house. Um, he's very willing to do that. Yeah. You know? I, I had, again, my memories were that Giles had been sort of library bound for, for a while. Um, oh, actually that is a good example of something that we, we get some information here that turns out to be not quite true later. I mean, he outright lies. <laughs> Either he's lying or he's, it's just, it, a, what do you call it? A plot? And a plot hole? A plot plot hole, yeah. I mean, you... He's never done any any spell casting before. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there are a lot of, like, little inconsistencies that, um, you know, we talked about this last week, that, you know, I'm willing to sort of fan around because, again, like I said, the writers were... They thought this was going to be it. Yeah, yeah, they're they're working through it as they go, basically. But um, some stuff, some things, I feel like are a little more difficult to sort of explain away. And and I don't know. I, I realize practically what that was is the writers hadn't decided yet that yeah. that, that uh, Giles was going to have a dark past or whatever, and so they just had that throwaway line because it was funny. But um, I don't know. For some reason, that one stands out to me, and that's one where I I it's harder for me to sort of rationalize in fiction why he would have lied about that. Yeah. Although I guess if I remember correctly, and maybe I don't, uh, when we do find out about sort of his darker past, he's not necessarily proud of it. Exactly. I think, you know, he's just met this slayer. He's, she's obviously hard to control. The last thing he's going to do is tell her about his wild past. Right. I guess <laughs> I'm uh, trying, I'm trying to make sense of it. it. It doesn't necessarily work. It's okay for there to be loose threads and, and plot holes uh, every once in a while. It, it doesn't all have to tie together. Um, I, I will tell you, and maybe you're going to ask about this, but there was one thing that I saw in this re- rewatch. And I said, it's been a while since I've watched it that, suddenly seemed like a direct tie to season six, which I have watched a bunch of times mm-hmm. because I really um, The cheer dance that the girl Amber who catches on fire does, right? it is Buffy's dance in uh, Give Me Something to Sing About in What's More With Feeling. Really? I swear. <laughs> that That is... I, that kind of blows my mind. That is and, that is extraordinary. You know, take away the pom poms, but it's the same same choreography. That is awesome, and that dance would have led to her bursting into flames too. Wouldn't yeah, it? yeah. Wow, that's that's amazing. I need to make note of that and bring it up again when we when we get to that episode. Um, Surely that's not an accident. I mean, obviously that was something intentional that the the writers must have done. Either I, that, or they just have a very small notebook of dance moves that they draw from. <laughs> that's the other possibility. I don't know. I just thought I saw it. I said that looks so familiar. What she's doing, and oh my, yeah. <laughs> that's that's totally awesome. So, uh, speaking of dance moves and choreography, I I, I want to ask. Um what is your take on the sort of the fight choreography and the stunt work in these early episodes? Cause I, I know that 
as the series goes on, and then uh, when we get into um, Angel's uh, solo series, not really solo, but anyways, yeah, um, the fight choreography just gets more and more like um, complex and and uh, sophisticated, I guess. But I remembered that uh, like the stunt work was always kind of impressive and it is. I mean, I'm, I don't want to look down on the stunt work or any of that. Cause it's a heck of a lot better than I certainly could do. Um, but there are a couple moments where it's sort of laughably clear when they cut from an actor to a stunt, <laughs> like a, a stand in or whatever, a stunt performer. Did that catch your eye this time? Or is that something that just doesn't really, you know, I have to admit that that's not something I typically notice. Um, a lot of it's very dark too. Mm -hmm. So they yeah. may be trying, that's probably how they're trying to disguise those kinds of things. Um, and I'm, yeah, I just, that's not an area where I'm. Well, your, your source. well, that's a good point that it's dark and they, they can get by with it that way. Most of the time, because specifically the one that stood out to me on this watch was the, the, what was her name? Amber, the dancer that catches on fire. Uh -huh. As soon as it cuts from, the whoever the actress was that was doing the dance to the stunt the stunt performer with her hands actually on fire mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't i thought it was pretty clear that it was clearly a different person but yeah. i mean that's fine and i i feel like maybe this happens i guess it makes sense since buffy is the one who has the most stunt work um i feel i i have a sense that there are episodes coming up where it will cut from from Sarah Michelle Gellar doing a really cool like finishing stance <laughs> or whatever to her uh, her stunt double whose name I should know because I think she has the same same stunt double all the way through. I'll, I'll look that up at some point, but and uh, I don't think maybe that the edits are always <laughs> as as uh, hidden maybe as they could be. But you may very well be right. This is not my area of expertise at all. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you comment on that. All right. Well, um, so we we can't get out of this. Uh, we agreed to talk about teacher's pets, so I feel like we need to. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm I have you feel the same way about it. <laughs> I have a fondness for David Greenwald because David Greenwald goes on to become showrunner of Angel, the series, which yes. I'm a bigger fan of Angel than I am of Buffy. Uh, so. You know, I, I want to love everything that David Greenwald does. And I will confess that Teacher's Pet has a horrible reputation. Uh, people who are familiar with the show tend to rank it near the bottom of, mm -hmm. of uh, in their episode listings. Um, I'm not sure that it's really as god-awful as its reputation would nah. lead you to believe, but it's pretty darn bad. Yeah. Well, it has so many issues. So I, I turned is behaving badly. <laughs> yes. So I, yeah. I'm try. I try to track the the maybe the metaphor we referred to monster of the week. I'm trying to track like the metaphor of the week because I feel like, especially in the early going, the show is trying to set up these these crazy like high school experiences as metaphors for other things yes. or vice versa, I should say. Um, and it was really, I had to struggle 
to find like my first note on the the metaphor of teacher's pet was there really isn't anything metaphorical about this <laughs> uh, but i'm like maybe i feel like there was an intention in here like it's it's something about teenage boys losing their heads when they have sex for the first time uh, I yeah mean, or when they think they might have right sex. right right um it's the adolescent male fear of women being alien or other maybe or i don't know the hollow note song she's a man eater i i don't know i don't know where to go with this well, it's, it's there's definitely xander's masculinity issues are yeah. at the top of this i mean it starts out with xander fantasizing that he's the vampire slayer yeah and he will save buffy yeah and then she will admire his uh music his guitar playing skills. Of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> you know, I completely forgot. I'm scanning through my notes here. I completely forgot to mention um, in, in which in the last episode, uh, Xander accuses Willow of metaphorically driving railroad spikes through his head. Oh yeah. I was like, yeah, come was... on, <laughs> come on right there. It was, they knew even then they were going to introduce spike. No, I'm kidding. But I just, that was, that was kind of funny. Kind of an amazing little reference that they snuck in there. Yeah, um, yeah so uh, the She-Mantis is, is a thing that the show did in, in season one. It, that's, that's an episode that happened. <laughs> I don't... Yeah, neither, neither Xander nor the other guy wants anyone to know that they're virgins. Right, right. Like, no, I'm... Yeah, I mean, there's the there's the fragile male ego and the the pressure, yeah. the performance anxiety, and all that stuff is in there. I just don't, I don't know how much of that was metaphorical. I it, I don't know when you've got a gigantic praying mantis on screen, like eating people's heads, uh, the metaphor kind of goes out the window, I guess. But yes, the the subtext rapidly becomes text. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I guess this episode is most notable for. Um, revealing Xander's middle name. Yes. Lavelle, which I think is kind of glorious. No wonder he has masculinity issues. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's a great. <laughs> Alexander Lavelle Harris. That's beautiful. That's, that's a wonderful name. He should own it. His parents hate him, obviously. There's also a very early... Now, this wasn't written by Joss Whedon, but it's a sort of Whedon-esque reference to shawarma. Because isn't it, isn't it this episode yeah. where Xander he calls shawarma a big meat hive, which is just a yeah. lovely that's, image. That's very Joss. That that's got to be a Joss line. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to say, I, I, I'll be the one to say it. The damn mantis eggs never pay off, right? I'm remembering that correctly. That is correct. Okay. Yes, that's right. a, that's probably another reason why this episode rates low. Because I mean, there's. There's so many little nitpicks that we could have with this episode. Like if, if there's a species, a supernatural species of gigantic mantis that have to mate with humans to fertilize their eggs. And like, I don't, I, it, so she lay in this episode alone. We see that she laid, I don't know, a couple dozen eggs and we saw most of them get destroyed at the end of the episode. We see one actually start to hatch. Why aren't there more of these she mantises running around? Good question. I don't know. I, why am I clinging to the, the, well, this, <sighs> this isn't national geographic. I don't know why I'm <laughs> so concerned about this, but <laughs> at any rate, uh, so. this, and this is one that had a, a tech, a technical 
problem in it that I think will make no sense doesn't make much sense today and will make even less sense in the future when they have a, an issue with the cassette tape that starts playing on the wrong side. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, and that worked perfectly in 1997. <laughs> um, I mean, that made perfect sense in 1997. Today, most people don't even know what a cassette tape is. That's right. What do you mean so, turn the tape over? What does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd forgot about that. Um, but, but it's really important to the, the big denouement, so the big ending. <laughs> um, man, does, does Teacher's Pet give us anything else? I'm trying to think. I mean, we meet uh, we meet Dr. Gregor. Well, I guess we met Dr. Gregory in the previous episode, right? We saw him briefly. That's right. He was and he was the science teacher in in which. So about these issues with teachers, he's here's one teacher that actually sees some potential in her and talks to her in a kind way. Yeah. And he's immediately eaten by a giant praying mantis. But that's her problems with teachers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That sort of thread is beginning. It's interesting that uh, it's never really discussed this way or, or spelled out this way in the episode. But just from Sarah Michelle Geller's performance, just from Buffy's reaction to losing uh, Dr. Gregory... It's kind of sad that, uh, I mean, she's got her mother and she's got Giles, but she really felt like she was really connected with Dr. Gregory. Dr. Gregory was uh, one of the few adult figures that, you know, I, I guess spoke to her of a bright future. Yeah, it gave her some hope that she yeah. could succeed in school and even though or something that she was, even though she had this other calling. Yeah. And uh, no, the, the guy who replaces him is a complete Nazi. So I don't remember. I don't remember who replaces him. <laughs> He's some guy who comes in. You will write a research paper. It will be one third of your grade. No. Oh, more that's right. Else. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's I talk. I'm not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, talk about never kill a boy on the first date, since this is this episode. This is actually, good. Yeah, this episode feels like it's where the show kind of, kind of finds itself mm -hmm. uh, in large measure. So um, what was the metaphor here with great power comes great responsibility. Is that, is that sort of the metaphor we're dealing with on this one? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. Responsibility and sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a theme that run that is predominant. That's like almost the theme of Buffy's life, at least all the way through to the end. Um, is the, the and, pressure of responsibility. Right. And maybe also that, you know, thinking about death is not the same as actually risking death. Mm -hmm. uh, so I want to ask you, um, I had zero memory of Owen at all. I, I, mm -hmm. I had completely forgotten that character even existed, which is fair since he's only in this one episode, but I'm kind of blown away. And I want to get your opinion here. Am I completely imagining things? Or does Owen bear more than a passing resemblance to Riley? You are right on target. I thought exactly the same thing. Okay. Okay. At first, when I first made that observation, I literally meant phys like he physically looks like Riley. I thought there is a, is a certain resemblance to um, gosh, his name again went out of my head. Um, 
Mark Blucas. Yeah. Who plays Riley. Uh, but then, like, by the end of the episode, even just character-wise, I think there are some parallels that could be drawn between between Owen and Riley, right down to the fact that uh, now it plays out a little differently and it has a different source, but both characters um, end their storylines by becoming fascinated or drawn to the the dangerous and life-threatening aspect of being in a relationship with Buffy. Yeah, exactly. Um, they are, Owen and Riley are kind of physically similar. They're also, well, I can't say emotionally similar. I mean, I think in some ways Owen is kind of similar to Angel. The description of him, mm-hmm. he's brooding, sensitive, yet manly. Yes. He can brood for 40 minutes. I've seen him do yeah. it or something like that. I was like, oh, he man. He likes to read. I mean, we yeah. Angel likes to read. Yeah. Um, but did Riley read Emily Dickinson? I don't remember. I don't remember if that was a trait no, of Riley or not. Riley's a, Riley's a psychology major. Oh, okay. Why do you be a graduate student? Okay. This is a senior. He's older than Buffy. Right. Um, so he is kind of booky, bookish. Mm-hmm. Um, but Owen's, he's kind of like Angel, but not dangerous because he's not a vampire Buffy hasn't made up her mind about Angel yet she doesn't even know that Angel's a vampire yet right yeah that's coming next week yeah um so So that makes him attractive but he's uh he's not he's a civilian I guess you could say Yeah. yeah 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 this is uh Buffy the first time Buffy learns. So uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to say this probably on every episode of this podcast. I have to point out that I'm, I I have some controversial opinions on some of the characters, including Buffy Summers. I don't dislike the show. I don't even actually like hate Buffy Summers, but I certainly have more problems with this character than a lot of fans do. And um, I, I, so I'm being kind of snarky when I say this is the first time Buffy learns the lesson that, you know, she can't have like, a regular boyfriend or whatever. Yeah, this is the first time, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. What else was I going to say? Oh, the uh, the crazy bus prophet who turns out to be yeah, uh, one of the five, and I can't they actually give him a name. I can't remember his name. I just wrote him down as crazy bus prophet. But anyways, uh, particularly in his, in his uh, bus-born prophecy scene, mm-hmm. <laughs> he reminded me a lot of Jane from Firefly. Huh. Well, I mean, he was kind of Southern sounding and kind of weird, uh, weird, amazing. Again, maybe it's just that I was in the, I was in the frame of mind of looking at one character and seeing resemblances to another because Owen reminded mm-hmm. me of Riley, but I don't know something. I think maybe he was wearing the, like an army jacket. I can't remember. And facially mm-hmm. he had like the facial hair of, of Adam Baldwin. I don't, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm imagining it, but I just—that was my note. I was like, "Oh my god, Jane, Jane is in the first season of Yeah Buffy." Um, so this episode gives us the immortal line: "If the apocalypse comes, beat me." Yes, actually, there's quite a few frequently quoted lines in here. I'm Buffy, and your history. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, Buffy says she won't wear her button. I that says I'm a slayer. Ask me how. <laughs> Which is yeah, that's another classic. Uh, I have a fridge magnet that says that. 
Awesome. Uh, Cordelia says, hello, salty goodness. For some reason, I had forgotten that was a Cordelia. Yeah. I had too. Oh, the other way Owen's like Riley is that he sees Buffy as being like two different people. And Riley comments on that before he gets to know. See, see it's, like, it's all leading somewhere. They knew. It's all leading it's, somewhere. They knew all the way back then that they were going to cast <laughs> Mark Lucas three seasons from now. So why do we think that this episode is where the series really kind of finds its footing? What okay. is it? Was it about this? It's episode? because the master reappears and mm-hmm. makes the prophecy mm-hmm. about the anointed one, the annoying one. It, yes. It, <laughs> soon to be known as the annoying one. <laughs> is he soon to be known that, or is that, I thought, I thought I was just saying that cause I remembered not caring for this kid, but uh, well, Fan boards at the time oh, okay. all called him the soon like, rapidly came to call him the annoying. I couldn't remember if the Scooby gang ever calls him that or not, but I uh, know they never call him that. Okay. Oh wait, you know what? I think Spike might call him. That oh, okay. Too. That sounds like something Spike would say. Yeah. So uh, is that it? Is that, I mean, is it really just the, the anointed uh, one prophecy? Yeah. So this is the, yeah, that prophecy moves this a step along in in the season arc. And the fact that Buffy thinks, okay, we stopped the anointing, the anointed one. We, the anointing one? <laughs> the anointing one. We, we stopped the prophecy because yeah. they think that the prophet vampire is, is him, but no. Yeah. Because that's the prophecy. The slayer will not stop him. She will not know him. And indeed, that is the case. I feel I, I, I feel like there was something else in this episode. I mean, that, obviously that, you know, this is taking the next step towards solidifying the season long, the big bad, which is a phrase mm-hmm. that has not been coined yet at this point in the series. I just realized, as I said that out loud, that is something we take for granted and it hasn't actually become a thing on the show yet. Um, but was was this the somewhere in one of these three episodes? I can't remember if it was uh, if it was Teacher's Pet because that was written by Greenwald, um, and so it seems likely. Or if it was this one where I feel like Angel kind of finally settled into much much more of like the Angel that we're going to see going forward. In if, the, in the I, first couple episodes, he really did not feel like Angel. Angel doesn't appear in Teacher's Pet. He does appear in Never Kill a Boy on the First Date. Okay. So when he turns up at the bronze and tells Buffy, hey, you need to go to the funeral home. Yeah, that's right. There were, they, he shared scenes with Owen. I remember that. Yes, now. and it's very awkward. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it was that then where I feel like um, I, either the writers and or David Boreanaz had finally – we're starting to like really get comfortable with what the character of angel would be um, in the first couple of episodes. Uh, we talked about how, uh, and we'll talk again uh, next week about the differences between angel and Darla early season one and what we see of those characters later. And, and here in never kill a boy on the first date, I feel is when David Borean has really kind of started feeling a little more like the angel that we know and love. Or most of us love, anyways. Yes. I mean, you can tell there's something going on, or at least some people think there's something going on. I mean, in fact, Cordelia's attracted by him. Owen thinks, hey, who's this other guy? You know, 
is this there's this other guy who's interested in Buffy. What you know? So if Buffy doesn't know that Angel's interested in her, everybody else does. <laughs> hmm. So what yeah. what else have we got here? Um, well, of course, there's Giles giving Buffy the speech about responsibility and sacrifice. Yeah. Which, and so we, this also tells us something about Giles and his history as as a watcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that he was told from an early, he knew from an early age he was, that he was going to be a watcher. It was sort of his family legacy. Yeah. Um, which is an advantage that obviously Buffy did not get. Mm-hmm. This was sort of just dropped on her. It's, it takes the series a long time. I, I feel like, correct me if, again, I'm misremembering, but it takes the series longer than you would expect to sort of drill down into why the Slayer lineage works the way it does. Like specifically why all Slayers, yeah. are, why all Slayers are, are female and, and what the sure sort of, addresses that. what's that? Uh, I'm not sure it ever addresses that in season one anyway. Oh no, no. Yeah. That, no, that's what I'm saying. Season one never touches on any of this. Uh, the series, it takes it quite a while before um, they, I think maybe even before they start asking the question, why are Slayers all, all girls um it's just this early in the season it's one i guess there's just so much new stuff that it didn't occur like we weren't we weren't thinking of that as a question but uh now with hindsight i'm like aren't you interested why buffy is the why is she the chosen one why is she the only one that can do this that's it's just fate (laughs) yeah there's there's so much fate and prophecy and 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 destiny and all that stuff in this early season that's just sort of taken for granted and uh, uh-huh. No one really starts asking questions about it until later, which again is probably, like you said, it's probably a, a byproduct of they they thought this was their one shot and they only had a limited amount of space to fill all this or to fit I, everything in. Yeah, just have to do what you can. And you know, I don't remember asking those kinds of questions when I first watched it. It was just like, this is great. <laughs> this, I. I think people were just excited to see a show where somebody like uh, the little blonde girl gets to kick the demon's asses. And that's what they, you know, that was the exciting stuff. Um, It was new. I mean, we have so many shows that have been influenced by Buffy now that when people watch, if you go back and watch it, you think, but this is just like X or this is just like Y. But at the time, there was nothing like Buffy. Yeah, no, uh, I, I mean, everybody tries to write like Buffy now. <laughs> Everyone tries yeah. to to emulate this now, and we just take it for granted. And uh, I agree. I, I again, I don't remember how much I was. I mean, obviously, I was liking the show because I stuck with it. I, I watched it from the beginning, and I and I watched uh, every episode <laughs> kind of religiously. Yeah. Um, so clearly, I was loving it, but. Uh, I guess how does this stuff sit with you now that you okay? I want to ask you since you're you're the resident expert on season six and seven. Um, okay, I'll do what I can. Uh, just I mean, what does it feel like watching this and and seeing these characters and and like feeling the show in its early stages, um, having focused so much on what you know it can be. Well, they all look very young, yes. and I think they have so far to go. I mean, they just they they just don't know. They have no idea 
<laughs> I sort of feel like, you know, like the first player, like, <laughs> right. You yeah. don't know um, what's to come. What is to come for Buffy and everyone else? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, where, uh, where are they get, where's, where are they going? Yeah. Where do we go from here? <laughs> uh, has... Let me let me reframe that a little bit. Okay, so rephrase that. We're, we're uh, again full spoiler show. We're not trying to hide anything from our listeners, uh, but let's try and in the framework of this first season, of as far as we've made it through the first season, where at this point, where does it feel like the show is going? So we've we've mentioned a couple of times. It feels like in Never Kill a Boy on the First Date the show kind of has finally found its footing. Like it, it knows what it's going to be now. Yeah. Um, what, or, or do you have any memory of what you thought the show was going to be at this point? Well, because they'd established this under the, the master underground, that sort of foreboding future was established even in the first couple episodes. Yeah. So that's hanging over the whole, the first season all along. So we know that that's coming. We don't know when or how Buffy's going to deal with that. She seems pretty good at dealing with vampires. <laughs> Just how how much worse the master is than all the others, that's still not clear. Yeah, at this point in the show, he's still... I mean, he talks a good game, but we really only have other people's reactions to him to base yeah. uh, you know, our, our idea of how big a bad he's going to be. But, uh -huh. um, but again, I have to mention, uh, Mark Metcalf, the actor that plays the master, one of my favorite actors. And, and, uh, I, I always knew him as Niedermeyer from animal house. So it, it's still just hilarious to me to see him as the master and to, to see him. Like, I, I can't tell how campy the character is supposed to be. I feel like there's a certain amount of camp, that's, I mean, there's the Joss Whedon camp. Like he he undercuts moments of tension by by saying funny things or or mm -hmm. acting, you know, against against type maybe. But there's just because I can't picture Mark Metcalf as anybody but Niedermeyer <laughs> from Animal House. There's a there's an extra level of humor for me in the character yeah. of the master. So even now, um, knowing the broad strokes of where everything's going, and and I know where this season in particular is headed, and and how it all ends. It's it's still weird at this point in the season for me to consider him like a legitimate threat. He's just Niedermeyer. He's just Niedermeyer. Yeah. But um, but <laughs> but that's well, the thing. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, go ahead. No, I was going to say that's uh, a thing that the that Whedon <clears throat> and this series does uh, is with its villains, with its big bads, is they they often start off pretty innocuous or, you know, laughable or whatever, um, under, uh, not underappreciated, but, uh, you know, not taken too seriously, I guess. And, and gradually they always build up to, to being pretty serious. I agree. Uh, um, one thing I also appreciate about the show and probably one reason I was able to enjoy the show because Truth is, I am not a horror fan. Mm -hmm. I'm big chicken, and everybody who knows me will tell say this is true. Um, so I don't normally watch 
horror movies. Um, I had to take a friend in the daytime to go see Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, that's kind of a spoof, too, but it still was scary. Yeah. Um, but the thing about Buffy is that, it, uh, as you say, it undercuts or makes fun of itself, even while there's some things that are really scary in it. Um, and so that humor is what enables me to enjoy it. And I don't have to be, I, of course, I don't think I could ever be scared of a giant praying mantis. Not the way it's presented in <laughs> Teacher's Pet. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe because some of the special effects are bad, especially here in season one. But uh, I mean, uh, I, it's part of the charm of the series. And I, I'm certainly, I don't want to knock the series for it because it's, it's what it is again, early season. They didn't have that much money, but mm -hmm. in some cases like, uh, with the, the she mantis or whatever, like they, they talk a good game in the episode about how terrible these, these monsters are supposed to be like, uh, one of the vampires, the, the, the fork hand vampire or whatever, as he sneaks up behind her in her human form and recognizes her and runs away in fear. And they make a big deal out of, out of that. Like, Oh, the she mantis is a terrible thing. Even these vampires are, are terrified yeah. of her. And then when you, you know, and then the final confrontation comes down to it's a paper mache, somebody in a gigantic paper mache mantis <laughs> suit in a dark basement. And like, they spray some bug spray in its face and chop it with a machete and right. into See, story. That, that was funny. I, they spray bug spray out. I'm going, Oh, you didn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I mean, that, that happens a few times and yeah. again, it doesn't, it doesn't ruin anything for me. It's, it's usually yeah. kind of amusing, but sometimes it stands out more than others. Like when Buffy has to fight a paper mache bring mantis. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I, I'm not, we're not done with paper mache monsters. I, I feel like maybe, oh, okay. Is this the Nader? Is this as low as it gets? I'm trying to remember if, uh, in, uh pro there, probably not past no, season it's one. Not, well, depends. I mean, people have different feelings about it. There's I robot you Jane. Oh, well, I mean, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing. The monsters, in a way, even if they're badly done, mm -hmm. they're not really the point. I mean, they are metaphors for something, or maybe they're not as metaphorical as they should be. <laughs> but I think what people love about Buffy from the beginning is the writing and the characters mm -hmm. and their interactions. Yeah. So even if you have a bad praying mantis monster even if the master isn't very convincing <laughs> yet. Now, know. now in terms of effects, I, I, I will say I've said before, I, the makeup that Mark Metcalf wears as the master, I, I think is among the best makeup the series does. This is good. The other vampires in season one, not so good. Not so good. Yeah. Like I, I think especially Darla, when she puts on her vamp face, it looks like yeah. the mate, the, latex is about to it looks like a mask that's about to fall off her face in a couple shots but that's all right that's all right they were you know still early days but i, I feel like uh 
the master was pretty convincing looking uh, from, from early on, but uh, yeah. And he certainly, he grows into, or, or we grow to appreciate his monstrousness as the season goes on. Um, man, uh, there's not an awful lot to say about these episodes. So I'm going to spoil my little outro uh, speech uh, by just revealing that you will be joining me again for the next episode. Unless you've changed your mind, unless I've scared you off with anything tonight. No, I'm, I'm good for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. And so uh, some of the episodes we're going to talk about next time, I feel like there's a little more meat on the bones. Like I keep, I keep wanting to ask questions about, um, I mean, I feel like we're, we'll have more to say about Xander next time. Yes. Um, Xander is a, is a little bit of an issue for me. We can talk a little bit about him right now. Cause we did get some stuff. I mean, I, teacher's pet was a, in essence, it was a Xander episode. True. Um, another thing I'd forgotten about early season, uh, early series, was how questionable Xander was. I I had oh, forgotten. Yeah. Like, I remembered Xander being, for a time, Xander was my favorite character. And I'm not saying I dislike Xander or anything, but just on this revisit, I'm like, man, he was kind of annoying. Yeah, he makes a lot of... He's a lot more, I don't know if I can say I didn't remember this, but a lot of comments about women, mm-hmm. uh, how the girls look here and there, and mm-hmm. he's lusting after the cheerleaders. I mean, mm-hmm. Buffy and Willow both seem to like say, oh, you know, sort of patting him on the head metaphorically and saying, oh, you know, Xander. <laughs> yeah. I That's mean, there's that, there's that funny, stuff, but... Uh, but... Some of that I write off as it was 1997 and these were supposed to be high school kids. Um, yeah. But I mean, the, I get that it's the character's arc. Like I, I, I get that the, these characters have a starting point and, and you know, the whole purpose of a character arc is they're supposed to change and grow as it goes on. Uh, and Xander's starting point is that he's the insecure uh, teen boy virgin that uh, doesn't know how to live in a world where the star of the show is a girl who's like 10 times stronger than him. Mm-hmm. I, I, I get that, but it, it's a, it's a drum that is beat pretty loud and pretty <laughs> repetitively in yeah. these first few episodes. I had forgotten. Uh, so, and part of that is probably, you know, foreign, uh, you know, I know where the character's going. So it's, it's, a different experience to go back and see him in these early stages. And also the fact that I'm, this is a binge watch that I'm doing. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, originally I was watching it week to week. So when you binge watch something, you get, it's much more compressed and you notice that stuff is starting to stack up more than if you were watching it on a weekly basis. But I don't know. I, is this a problem that, that you have with early Xander or do you give it a pass? Cause you know where it's going. Um, maybe a little bit of both. Mm. I mean, it's, I can see some of the things that I see here in the first season, the fact that he's, uh, he has this crush on Buffy Mm -hmm. that, uh, he doesn't know what to do with, or he can't effectively, he doesn't know how to deal with it. Um, she has no interest in him and she's deflecting him all the time. That's something that's going to carry through. Um, you know, we're going to see it all the way 
at least up to season three, and it's going to be Anya's going to bring it back. I, I, I mean, you. I'm sure you remember better than I do, but I feel like it never goes away. I feel oh, like I feel like this is a thing with Xander all the way through to the end. Yeah, um, maybe he gets a better perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know. I, I know that in, to be, he's more willing to be her friend. Yeah, as time goes by. I do know that in season seven we finally get a moment of. I don't know if we get any between now and then. I can't remember, but I do know that in season seven, there's finally the sort of cathartic moment where he sits down and and kind of has a confessional, open discussion about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I I don't. I I'm not naysaying Xander Harris. He's still adorable. I, I feel like maybe next week or whenever I have I haven't decided what the schedule of these episodes is going to be. So. You listening at home, you know when I release this episode. I don't know yet, but in our next episode, when we talk about um, the next set of of episodes of the show, uh, I think maybe we'll be able a little better to talk about this. But uh, it's worth pointing out for anybody who doesn't know, which I can't imagine who that would be, that Xander has always been known as the the Joss stand-in. Like he's, this is true. He's Joss's avatar in the series. Joss has said that Xander is him, but he's also said that all the characters are him in certain ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, Xander, definitely. But I mean, I, maybe it's because, and this is the thing, when ultimately we get to Angel, well, not the episode, but the series Angel, this is the thing I'll talk about in that series as well, that... Um, in all of these, in all of these teams, the Scooby Gang, the the Fang Gang, whatever, uh, there's always at least one character who's kind of the the normal. He's the audience uh, surrogate or whatever. You've got the you've got the Slayer, the the Witch, uh, and then Xander, who's just the guy. Um, uh, so maybe that's why and and the show even lampshades this like xander at a certain point in the series he's like all right i'm done being everybody's butt monkey or whatever like this is the thing that comes back but xander i feel like at least to a certain extent his identity becomes oh that's the joss of the show and uh uh, i don't know that this this is a thing maybe as this podcast continues as we get further and further into the series it'll be more appropriate to bring this up but I, you know, I just, some people that's problematic for some people that, that Joss is represented by Xander or vice versa. And yes. I don't know. I don't know if you have a, have an opinion on that. I don't really, I mean, as I say, you know, one in some interview or other, Joss has said that Xander is him in high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure he would say or has said that Xander is him always in every way. Right, yes. Um, so, yeah. So that's, I guess that's what I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, um, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure what else we have to say about these three episodes. I'm, I'm legitimately excited. I, I'll give a, a little hint at what's coming next time. Uh, I'm surprised to discover that one of the episodes we're going to talk about next time actually 
well, yeah. One of the episodes that I wasn't expecting that we discuss next time turns out to be one of my favorite episodes. I, 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 I don't know how more vague. Could I vague that up for you anymore? <laughs> um, anyways, so I'm excited to talk about the next batch of episodes is where I'm going with this. So um, is there any other, anything else we need to say about this? Any, are there any important points that we <laughs> didn't cover or? Oh, uh, Giles gets knocked out again in uh, Never Kill a Boy. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Another Giles getting knocked out. Uh, but in this one, it is good. It is helpful because he, as he gets knocked out, he turns on the furnace, the incinerator. <laughs> That's right. It's not the usual get, getting knocked out. It's actually forwards the action. Really, I think this is one of the better written episodes of season one in a lot of ways. The so yeah, all of these episodes had the uh, the sort of the banter, the the Slayer slang, as it comes to be known. Um, but yeah, I agree. This episode, one of the other things about this episode that made it stand out was, I feel like, just the dialogue, just like mm-hmm. the the everyday discussions that the characters had, yeah. felt felt more natural there was definitely a development a growth in the relationship between buffy and giles in this episode yes um they they came to an understand more of an understanding of each other which was sweet yes i agree um all right i don't i think we've said what we could get what yeah. we can about these three yeah all right so this is a thing that may happen from time to time there may just not be an awful lot of uh of you know, meat on the bone of some of these episodes there. Fortunately, I don't think there are very, very many teacher's pets over the course of the series. So you you pointed out, uh, I robot you Jane and, um, man, there's another one that is famously terrible. I'm trying to remember what it was. Uh, is it Ted? Is that what it, what's the name That's of the episode? Actually pretty good. Is that the name of the episode with, um, with John Ritter? John Ritter? Yeah. Really? I I don't remember. I just remember that he was in that episode and that I thought people hated that. That's not till season two. We're still a ways away from that. That's but it, Oh, that's another David Greenwald. That's a David Greenwald and Joss Whedon written episode. And my memory is that people hated that. Really? May, well, I, find out. I could be completely wrong. Maybe I, I'm conflating that with iRobot Eugene. I don't know. But we'll find There's out. Robot. I'm sorry. sorry, people. <laughs> There is a robot in in uh, Ted. Ted. Yeah, that maybe that's why I'm I get those confused. I don't know. Maybe. We'll find out next time because uh, I robot you, Jane, is one of them that we uh, have to discuss next time. So, okay. um, Elizabeth, thank you for joining me. Uh, is there? Do you want to be stalked online? I always give my guests the opportunity to uh, tell people how to find them online, but uh, that presumes that you want to be found. So is there any way people can find you? Or uh, Yes, people can find me on Twitter at E.L. Rambo. All right, there you go. Um, and spelled like the movie, not like the poet. Spelled, <laughs> spelled like the movie? Any relation? N- no. No? All right. 
No. I had to ask. I had to ask. Um, all right. Well, thank you, everybody at home, for listening. You can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, um, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Uh, and while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. Seems uh, that a couple of other Buffy podcasts beat me to the punch. Imagine that. Uh, and so any kind words that you could spare uh, would really help us stand out from the crowd. If you have questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at conswithdead, or reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash conswithdead. Conswithdead everywhere. Um, as I've already let slip several times, Elizabeth is returning next time. Uh, to help me discuss episodes 106, The Pack, 107, Angel, and 108, iRobot, Eugene. So, until then, gur-arg, everybody. Gur-arg. Ooh.